0: You have to be careful coming to the pulpit on Sunday mornings. You get trampled right here with all those children, and they're excited to get where they're going. Our scriptures found this morning in Acts chapter 14. We'll read um, verses 19 through 23 together. We'll do a quick background of the others. But let's begin this morning by reading, beginning in verse number 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. Anybody had a bad day this week? Anybody would say, I've, you know, I've had a really bad day. If you could get up here and you could testify, you could, you could talk about a really bad day. Let me share a story with you about a guy who had a worse day. Fire authorities in California found a corpse in a burned-out section of forest while assessing the damage done by a forest fire. The deceased male was dressed in a full wetsuit, complete with scuba tanks on his back, flippers, and face mask. A post-mortem test revealed that the man died not from burns, but from massive internal injuries. Dental records provided a positive identification. Investigators then said, about to determine how a fully clothed diver ended up in the middle of a forest fire. It was revealed that on the day of the fire, the man went diving off the coast some 20 miles from the forest. Firefighters, seeking to control the fire as quickly as possible, had called in a fleet of helicopters with very large dip buckets. Water was dipped from the ocean and emptied at the side of the forest fire. You guessed it. One minute, our diver was making like a dolphin in the Pacific, the next he was dumped from a fire bucket 300 feet in the air. Some days it just doesn't pay to get out of bed. So if you think you've had a bad day this past week, go back and remember this guy and know that your week wasn't really all that bad. Amen? Well, let's talk about a man who was having a bad day. The Apostle Paul here is having a really bad day. If you pick this story up in verse number 19, he has been dragged outside of a city and he has been stoned and presumed that he is dead, he's left left there. Just a little while before that, there were people who were bowing down wanting to worship he and Barnabas because they thought they were gods. That's how quickly his day changed and how bad that it got. But let's listen to how Paul takes this bad day and uses it for God's glory. We see that this is Paul's first missionary journey. It started somewhere around 47 to 48 A.D. Paul and Barnabas spend one and a half years evangelizing and preaching in this area, and then they go back and spend one and a half years discipling in the same area. Paul and Barnabas travel preaching the gospel. They're they're in the cities of Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's the region known as Galatia, and we know from from this time that this is where Paul wrote the book of Galatians while he was in this area. Some background here in chapter 14 that we need to run through real quick. Verses 1 through 7, we find Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, and there's a number of Jewish and Gentile converts. They are powerfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and there are many miracles being done. But Paul and Barnabas, their ministry becomes so controversial that both the Jews and the Gentiles who haven't been converted want to harm them, so they move on to Lystra. And in verses 8 through 18 in chapter 14, we see that there is a man there who was crippled from birth. Everyone there knew that he had been crippled from birth. Paul commands him to rise up And to leap to his feet. And everyone there knows that this man has been healed. But they don't understand completely how he was healed. So at that moment the people begin to cry out. And they say the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Now they think that Paul is the Greek god Hermes. Because Hermes is the messenger of the Greek gods. He's the one who speaks. And they think that Barnabas is Zeus because... They think that Paul represents Barnabas. And so Zeus must be the chief of all the gods. So they begin to cry out and say that they want to worship them. They begin trying to make sacrifices to them because they believe that they are gods who have come down in the likeness of men. So Paul takes the opportunity here to tell them about a time when God really did come in the form of man, in the form of Jesus Christ. And he begins to proclaim to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even with that, they barely escape the people offering sacrifices to them. Now, the Jews are already just really tore out of the frame because of what Paul is preaching about Jesus. And because he's telling them the truth that he was the Messiah and that they killed him. Now the Greeks become upset because of their disappointment in what has just happened, and so everything turns on Paul and Barnabas. We see Paul's past preaching. There is a shift happening here in the book of Acts around chapter 14. Up until this point, Simon Peter had been the main focus of the book of Acts and his preaching and his ministry. Now we see a shift. Simon Peter had preached a very powerful message there on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 converts came to know Jesus Christ. Paul preaches in the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing as powerful of that is going on. But here comes the Apostle Paul, who's had this great Damascus Road conversion, and not only is he preaching with the full power and backing of the Holy Spirit, but there's a difference in Paul and everyone else. Paul has the intellectual ability because of his background, because of his education in the Jewish law, and because of his citizenship in Rome, Paul understands not only the Jewish philosophy, religion, and culture, but he also understands the Greco-Roman philosophy and culture and religion better than any man who's walking the face of the earth. And so Paul has the ability... To stand and defend the gospel to the best and the brightest of the Jewish priests and also to the greatest philosophers of the Greek era of that time. Paul is the best of the best. And Paul has a passionate persuasion. He has an urgency. And here's his urgency. Paul knows this. Paul knows because of the message that he is preaching to the people that he is preaching it to, what does he know? He knows that his life is going to be short. He knows that at some point, the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities will work together, and he will be martyred for the cause of Christ. So it is urgent for him, in every place he goes, to proclaim the gospel as boldly as he can. Now we see... The pendulum, a popular opinion, swing on Paul. Look at verse number nineteen. It says Jews came from these other cities, and they persuaded the crowds. Anybody ever give you the warning when you were a kid? Don't follow the crowd. Don't don't follow with the crowd. I'd love to have a dollar for every time I heard from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I graduated high school, don't follow the crowd. And every time that I followed the crowd, guess what happened to me? Trouble. Great trouble. And then I would have somebody who would sit and look at me and say, I told you not to follow the crowd. You ever hear those saying, if everybody else was jumping off the roof, would you jump with them too? I'd have probably been the first one going. Have you ever seen the positive and negative effects of people following the crowd? I have, a, I have a unique perspective on Friday nights during football season. I sit on the visitor side, and I sit in the press booth, and I sit, I sit with the crowd, the opposing crowd. Now, y'all who know me know that I, I bleed blue and gold, all right? And so I go up those steps, and I'm proud to go up and represent and be one of the voices for Piedmont. But we leave our window open so that we can hear the crowd and so that we can get the, the crowd noise. So I have a unique opportunity to hear the opposing team. I hear their crowd and what's going on in their conversations. Two things in the last couple of years that really stuck out to me. I remember in 2016... We were playing in the playoffs, and we were playing against a team who had a really good running back, but they weren't using him. And we were discussing it there in the booth and asking each other, wonder why they're not using number so-and-so. Well, all of a sudden, you hear in the crowd, you hear men, grown men in the crowd start saying, yelling to the head coach, run the ball. Coach Smith, you never hear these things, do you? You block them out. Run the ball. Give the ball to number nine. Then those men who are yelling that get up from their seats and they go down to the fence. And it's just a couple of them in the beginning and they're yelling at the head coach. And they're yelling, give give the ball to so-and-so. Give the ball to number nine. And in a few minutes, it's not just two men. But it's a crowd of men, and they're standing behind that coach, and they're screaming at him and yelling at him and telling him how he ought to call the game. And it gets to the point to where I'm thinking, I might order to send Freddie Norton a text and tell him to come over here and say, you need to clear this fence and get all these people off of here. And in hindsight, if Coach Smith knows what I'm talking about, this was the coaches, he resigned after that game, he'd had enough. So I saw the negative effects of what a couple of people can do when they start pulling a crowd together. But then let me tell you about the positive effects I also saw this past year during the playoff. We played a team from up in North Alabama, and they came, and we were winning, and it was, obviously, it was obvious we were going to win. And now with a couple of minutes left in the game, I saw the positive effects of following the crowd. I saw a couple of their fans begin to get up and leave their seat and begin to go around and pick up all the trash and to begin to take that trash down to the trash can and leave it. And then after that, couple of people did it. I saw five or six other people until it got to the point to where more than half of their crowd, before they left the game, Dr. Clemens, you, I'm sure you remember this, They got up, and they they got all the trash, and they took it to the trash cans. And when I walked down the visitor steps after the game, it was cleaner than when I walked in. Because a couple of people did a positive thing and got a crowd around them to do the positive. Now, popular opinion persuaded this crowd to do what was negative. I can tell you that a minister like Paul can go from the penthouse to the outhouse faster than any other profession. You can be way up here and then all of a sudden you're way down here. Paul and Barnabas see that. Paul and Barnabas are at the mercy of popular opinion. Let me tell you this. If you are a leader... No matter if you're a leader in the church, if you're a leader in a school, if you're a leader on a team, if you're a leader in your business or where you work, there will be a time where popular opinion will swing against you and you won't be quite as popular as you were the day before. Every leader will face that. And when you're there, all you can do is cry out and ask God to have mercy and grace on you and to pull you through and to see you through to the other side. But let me give you this advice. Don't let the nattering nabobs of negativity stop you from leading. Don't let them keep you from going ahead with anything that God has told you you need to do. You keep doing it. Because look here what happens to Paul. In verse number 20, there's a crowd of people who gather around him. The disciples gather about him. He's at his very lowest point, And there's people that are there for him. Last week, we see at the end of Jesus' fast, angels coming to minister to him. Here we see Paul is left for dead, and a crowd of people gather around him. Now, why did they initially come to gather around Paul? They initially came to mourn Paul. They initially came to mourn because they thought Paul was dead. And so they wanted to be there. They thought either he's dead or he's dying, and we want to be here to comfort him as he leaves this world. Now, think about this. The people who have been there for you in your life, in your lowest point, the people who were there when you were mourning, people who have been there with you in the depths of despair, when family situations happened, when there were tragedies or when there were things that came about, and there were people who gathered around you and were there to weep with you and to console you and to and to lift you up during that time. I can remember those times and and as after I became a Christian and and just being amazed when things would go wrong. All of a sudden there would be people who showed up to help you get through it. And it, it 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 taught me early on that that's what we're about. And then they initially come to mourn, but then they come and they they, they have to celebrate. They, they, and the, there's the people who are there with you in times of joy. And if you think about it, it's probably the same group of people. These people, listen to this. When they came together around Paul, guess what they were risking? They were risking their own physical safety. Because what had just happened to Paul? A group of people had got mad at Paul, and they took, drug him outside of the city and tried to kill him. Now, if, if these people go out and support him, they're putting themselves at risk of being the same thing happening to them. But they go anyways. They go and they surround him. And there's a, there's, there's a great message here. Remember those people. Remember those people who are there for you during these times. Because look what Paul does now in verse number 21. What does he do? At the end of verse number 20, it says, On the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe when they had preached the gospel. What does Paul do? He rose up and he entered the city. Now, he gets on with a task at hand, which is preaching. Would anybody have been able to look at Paul in his situation and say if Paul would have said, you know what, guys, I'm going to take a month off. I'm just going to go sit and, and, and just think about things, reflect on things, pray about things. This may not be what I want to do the rest of my life. Could anybody there have blamed him? Not really. But well, what does Paul do? Paul gets up, he dusts himself off, and he walks straight back into the city. He goes back and preaches. It's amazing. Listen, let me ask you this question. What is more powerful, his words or his witness? What's more powerful about Paul at this moment? Is it the words that he has proclaimed Or is it the witness of the fact that he got up and he went back because he knew that that was his mission, was to preach? His commitment is more powerful than any of the preaching that he's going to do. The people see a man that even in the face of death, he gets up and he goes back into the city. Now, what's the outcome of this? The outcome is in verse number 21. It says, they made many disciples. He went back to the cities, he and Barnabas go back to the city where they're hated, and they preach the gospel. Let me me slow down right here and tell you this. The gospel is never popular once the gospel points out the need for the forgiveness of sin. The gospel is never popular. It will never be popular. I want to proclaim this to you from this pulpit this morning. When you see these people who are building these massive followings of tens and twenty thousands of people, and you see everybody in love with them and following them and, and just falling all over themselves about them, and you see them with Oprah, guess what? They're not preaching repentance. They're not preaching forgiveness of sin. They're preaching what is helping build them 10,000 square foot homes somewhere. The gospel is never popular because the gospel points out the need for forgiveness of sin. And in the world we live in, in the humanistic society that we live in, people don't want to hear that they need a God to come and save them because they believe that they're God themselves and they can save themselves. The gospel is not popular in most churches in Western society today because the gospel points out the need for salvation, not the need for baptism or the need for church membership or the need for any other thing, but it points out the need for a Savior. The gospel is not popular. We see what happened to Paul here. But here's what. We're not to worry about being popular. We're not to worry about whether or not we're loved for sharing the gospel or for preaching or proclaiming the gospel or for living the gospel. We're just to do it. I've made hospital visits to people who I knew walking in that hospital, that there was going to be a room full of people and there wasn't a soul in that room that that, that liked me at all. But the Lord said, go and pray with them. And when you pray, pray in a way that shares the gospel. I have preached on Sunday mornings and, and preached to whole pews of people who let me know that they didn't like me because they were glaring at me. But that's all right. I'm going to preach the gospel. Paul knew this, Jesus had said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Paul said this, I'm in pretty good company, because if I'm hated for my beliefs, I know that Jesus was hated, and Paul said this, my task is to make disciples. Now, let's get to the meat of the, the heart of the sermon. That was the introduction. First of all, look at what Paul and Barnabas were doing. are specifics. First of all, they're strengthening the souls of the disciples. Look here in verse number 22. Very specifically it says that Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of disciples. Now what does that mean to us? Think about what we were challenged with two Sundays ago. We challenged ourselves for Piedmont First Baptist Church to grow in becoming a house of prayer. Because here's what we know. Nothing great in ministry is ever accomplished without what? Without prayer. Where there is much prayer, there is much what? Much power. I read a devotional yesterday. I, I, I sent a text message with a devotional to several of you. It's a devotional that began in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. With this verse, that says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. This is Paul writing to the church at Colossus. He never gets to go and see them, but he's concerned about them. And he talks about the struggle of praying for them, And the key word there is struggle. And here's what the devotion says. It says, saying prayers is easy, but really praying face-to-face with God generates opposition. The Bible says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of this dark age. And we never wrestle against them more than when we're praying. We may set our hearts to pray, and 20 things are sure to enter our minds to distract us. Anybody else have that? You go to sit down to pray. you set down some time to pray. And all of a sudden, everything that you're supposed to do that day pops in your mind. Is this an accident? No. The struggle in prayer means that there are strong opposing forces against us. Satan doesn't like us praising God, hearing sermons, or reading our Bibles. But when he sees us begin to pray... He knows we are linking up with God and that his kingdom is going to be shaken. So he really comes against us. The people who really learn to pray, however, are those who fight through that struggle, who have discernment and push back against the enemy, not feeling sorry for themselves, not overwhelmed by circumstances. They're the ones who say instead, Satan, I'm coming against you in the name of Jesus. You will release my loved one because I'm going to pray until this thing is taken care of. That's the struggle. And here's what's going to happen. As we continue to pray, as we continue to pray about developing ministries from these things that we've been challenged with, you're going to know that in your personal life, the devil's going to attack you personally. Because he does the the last thing. It's okay for you. He, He doesn't like you to listen to sermons. He doesn't like you to be in fellowship with other Christians. But the thing that he really hates is for you to pray. And the thing that he really hates is for you to fast and pray. Because every example we see of fasting and praying throughout the scriptures, people are given power of the Holy Spirit in their groups and great things begin to happen to God, for God. So know that in your individual life, if you commit to do this, Satan is going to come against you and attack you. I can can guarantee it. But know this also. Because of the strengthening of prayer, I can tell you this morning without, without a doubt in my mind that just in the last week, just in the last week, God has spoken to me more clearly and more directly than at any other time in my whole Christian experience, in my whole Christian journey. And in both examples, He spoke clearly not only in my mind, but in my heart. And let me know in one instance, just trust me. Just trust me. I shared this with y'all last Sunday night, those who, of you who were here. He told me, just trust me. It's not going to be how you want it to be, but just trust me. And another, another example, he clearly spoke to me. And not only to me, but two or three other people who were praying with me and told us all the same thing. It's amazing what happens when we commit ourselves to becoming the house of prayer. Commit to praying. He was strength, they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. Nothing strengthens us more than when we pray and when we pray together. And then he was encouraging them to continue in the faith. And what does that mean to us? Our challenge from two Sundays ago was for Piedmont First Baptist Church to multiply disciples through sound biblical teaching and preaching. This hit home to me this past week. Somebody asked me to find one of the baptism pictures of one of the children who had been baptized in the last couple of years. So I was going through those baptism pictures trying to find that picture. I found that picture and I set it aside, but the Lord began to, Show me something there through those pictures. I begin to look at the number of people who've been baptized, and I begin to think about what we talked about in Sunday school the week before, is how many of those people are plugged into a ministry right now, how many of those people are serving, how many of those people are still here. And let me tell you this, nine out of ten Southern Baptist churches would say they struggle with the same exact thing. It's the greatest need that we have And it's the hardest need to fill. But when it is filled, it is the most fruitful of all the ministries that we have. It's when we are teaching people through sound biblical teaching and preaching. And we're teaching them what it really means to be a disciple. The Great Commission is all about making disciples. Jesus said, go make disciples. And then he finished it with teaching those disciples to what? To obey. Mark 1, 17, Jesus walking along, and when he sees the, uh, these brothers fishing, he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of what? Fishers of men. So what does a, what a, a disciple, if a disciple is, is taught to obey what Christ has taught us and what the Scriptures teach us, what is that disciple going to do? They're going to multiply, and they're going to plug in, and they're going to be a part of ministry. And then the third thing is this. This is how they were praying for the people. This is how they were helping the people here. Paul and Barnabas say this, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That applies to us this way. For Piedmont First Baptist Church to have a missions focus that ties our city, nation, and world together. Jesus said this about tribulation in John 16, He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heed, take heart, I have overcome what? I've overcome the world. Now, let me ask you this. Does tribulation happen in another part of the world? Yesterday, if you if you were paying attention to the news, yesterday there were... 95 people murdered and 150 people injured in a terrorist attack. Tribulation and evil there. Tribulation and evil all in other places. But let me ask you this. Does tribulation and evil have a zip code? No. Tribulation and evil are everywhere. Tribulation and evil are here in Piedmont. It's in any other part of the world that we go to. And here's what we have to Paul said, the, the, the scriptures say this through many tribulations, we, we, together, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's universal. Piedmont is in the same tribulation. Piedmont, Spring Garden, Pleasant Valley, doesn't matter where you're from, the same tribulation happens here that happens in other places. And here's what, here's what we know. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that there will come perilous times. The King James word for it is perilous times. Times where they, it will just be worldwide, all these things happening. And here's what, the time is coming for Christians globally to face tribulation together. So another great challenge that we have is, how do we do work here in our nation and in the world And how do we bring those people, how do we bring some of those people back here to minister, to help us minister to the great needs that we have here? In other words, we're all in this together. Every Christian, we're all in this together. And here's the things that they, the the specific things they did, but here's the strategy that they used. Look at verse number 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas are praying for the leadership in these, church, in these churches. Why? Where are Paul and Barnabas going? They're leaving them. They're leaving these churches, and they spend a year and a half going through these churches, doing these things, strengthening these people giving them a plan because they know they've got to leave and they got to go somewhere else. And here's the wisdom. Paul and Barnabas know that they have to develop a whole new generation of leaders in these churches. And so they pray for wisdom for these people through prayer and fasting. Let me finish up by asking a couple of questions. Where should leadership... In our world, where should leadership be developed? Should it be developed in our schools? In our workplaces? In our universities? In our homes? Probably we could all say every one of those places are places that leadership should be be developed. But where where is the greatest place where leadership should be developed? In our churches. In our churches. Because we don't always know what the leadership philosophy in a school or a university or... now I have, I have one at a university who calls me probably every couple of weeks and says, Daddy, this, this is crazy what they teach here. It's absurd what they teach here. Think about this. The city of Boston, Massachusetts... Because of its closeness to the major universities that it's close to, the major Ivy League universities that it's close to, think about this. 25% of the next generation leaders that will occupy the greatest leadership roles in Washington, D.C., 25% of those people will come within a small radius of Boston, Massachusetts. Now think about this only 2% of the area that these people will come from would identify themselves as being an evangelical Christian. So out of that 25% of the people who will be holding the highest offices in Washington, D.C., only out of that group, what's the chances of anyone having a Christian influence on them during the time that they're there? It's very slim. So what if the church took the role of developing leaders? How would that impact our schools and the workplace and the government? Here's what Craig Groeschel says in his book, Designed to Lead. No organization should outpace the church in developing leaders. Why should we not be outpaced? No other gathering of people has a greater mission, a greater promise, or a greater reward we should be developing Christian character and Christian leaders here in our church that go into their workplace or into their schools or into the government or wherever they go and they impact with what they know and what they have been what has been instilled in them they impact those places with the gospel of Jesus Christ so here's my challenge this week I'm asking you to fast and pray this Tuesday and continue to pray for these three challenges. Whether you give up one meal or whether you give up three or whether you go from six in the morning, six in the evening, I'm asking you to continue to pray for these three challenges that we've been talking about this last few weeks. And here's what, how I want you to hook to that. Pray for leadership from among our people to take these three challenges and be led by the Holy Spirit to lead new ministries that will impact generations to come for the sake of the gospel. Generations to come. Somewhere, 148 years ago, there were 11 men and women who met together because their hearts were brought together by the Holy Spirit to plant a Baptist mission in in Cross Plains, Alabama. And that Baptist mission still exists today, named First Baptist Church of Piedmont. And if the Lord continues, if if He doesn't return for His church, hopefully we we will be teaching and preaching and sharing the gospel generations from now because of the prayers that we're praying right now. Because there are more churches that are on the verge of, of shutting down than there are churches that are on the verge of thriving and going on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ in their communities and around the world. So Paul and Barnabas take this strategy and they pray for wisdom for these leaders and they pray for the Lord to establish those churches and guess what? For generations after Paul and Barnabas left there, these churches were still reaching people and discipling people and multiplying and growing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, you see Paul's Paul's greatest desire is to preach and to tell people of their need for salvation, grace, grace that they couldn't earn through the Jewish faith of working, but grace that was provided only by Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. And this morning, you're, you may be here, you may be hurting, you may, be, you may be feel like you're without hope, you may feel like the world is just crashing in on you, and I can tell you this morning that Jesus Christ is your only hope and your only answer this morning. And I'm not telling you that by, by confessing your sins to Jesus and by repenting of your sins that those same troubles and those same worries won't be there tomorrow. But I can tell you this, for the rest of your life here on this earth, Jesus Christ will walk with you in every single situation that you go through. And I can can line up people all across this front who will stand and give testimony to the fact that he's done that for them. So this morning, if you're here and you don't know Christ and you need to repent of your sins and you need forgiveness of your sins, now would be the perfect time. Next Sunday, we'll have a baptism. There may be some of you here this morning who need to follow Jesus. You need to be obedient as a disciple and follow Jesus in baptism. Or you may need to join your focus and your energy with this church, with what the Holy Spirit has gifted you with, to work together with people here in this church to reach this city and other places for the gospel of Jesus Christ. My challenge for all of us is to pray about these things and to pray for the Holy Spirit to give people a desire to pray and to step up and say, I want to lead ministries that come from this. Would you stand? Father, thank you for the opportunity to share from your word. I pray, dear God, that you would reach us, reach within our hearts, and pull out what it is you desire for us to do. Father, as we have this time of decision and reflection and worship, I pray that we would use it wisely That we would do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.